You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike, really good to have you on Real Vision. Thanks for having me, Ralph. Great to see you. Um, look, there's a lot I want to talk to you about, but I think, as always, because so many people are going through the learning journey of all of this, I'd love to first hear a bit about your background and then how on earth you got into this whole space to begin with. But let's go back in time a bit and tell us a bit about your background. Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm a technologist by background. I've been here in Silicon Valley for, I, I guess, 25 years now. So that dates me a little bit. I uh, got my first state uh, taste for innovation startups. You know, I was, was at Netscape before it was a public company. Um, and it, it kind of got me hooked on, you know, when you're, you're building in small companies, you can make really big impacts and there's kind of no boundaries. Uh, in terms of where you can go. So I got addicted to startups, I guess, so to speak, that way. I uh, founded a couple of companies, sold one at Microsoft, ended up at Google for a while. Uh, at Google, I was one You've of the- You've done the whole kind of round of all the great companies because, I mean, it's a bit Netscape. I mean, there's books written about it at that period in time, right? Uh, well, it was a fantastic journey. I mean, uh, incredibly lucky. You know, Ben Horowitz was actually my product manager at uh, Netscape um, at the time that, that I was there. Of course, I was working with, with Mark Andreessen as, as well. Um, Brendan Ike of the Brave browser fame, uh, JavaScript's inventor creator, um, also uh, from, from that era. Um, but yeah, I mean, tremendously lucky um, to be kind of in this space at this time. Um, so anyway, mostly technology background uh, and uh, I ended up at, at, at Google. I, I was the, the author of the HTTP 2.0 protocol, um, kind of a big company, a little bit different. As uh, is, is one of the early members of Chrome, it's got some innovation to it, but of course it's inside of a, a huge company um, with all the resources in the world and, and they were willing to apply that. But um, that was also phenomenal. Um, only two companies on the planet really could have written a new version of the web protocols. Hadn't been changed in 15 years. Um, it was either Microsoft or, or, or Google. And uh, you know Google was doing it at the time, and um, so again that was kind of fantastic. But I always wanted to get back into startups, so um, eventually I did did leave Google, um, and I had I'd found Bitcoin. Uh, and how? You know, how? You know I wish I could remember the exact time I first heard of Bitcoin. I, I I can't remember exactly that, but you know you hear this experience a lot. You hear it once, you hear it twice. You read something, you're like, oh, it's a scam. You read something again, oh, it never worked. Um, eventually you kind of hear it and you wish that you had that instinctive ability to just like hear the word and then know you want it into it. But um, at some point it had been hit against my head enough times that I said, wait, let's take, take a look at this. Um, and then from a technical perspective, I mean, uh, Bitcoin combines a number of elements, uh, whether you're talking about how the cryptography works to how the mining works and how the supply works. Um, it's just fascinating. And um, as a as a technologist, of course, the first thing I, I wanted to do is go try to poke holes in it, um, which which I tried tried in vain in, in vain for a while. Um, but uh, uh, eventually, you know, I got super excited about it. Love the prospect that Bitcoin has opened up our eyes to what money can be. Um, it doesn't just have to be that green stuff that you don't actually know where it comes from. Um, and there's so much opportunity around it. And you know, software 
has this tendency to upend the things that you know from the past. So that's what got me excited about it. I started focusing a little bit on security, uh, uncovered this little corner of, of Bitcoin uh, called P2SH or pay to script hash, uh, which is gobbledygook jargon. But ultimately, you know, that's the underpinnings of what we do with multisig. Those days, the community was, was super helpful. You kind of write to the Bitcoin wizards and they give you positive feedback. And uh, I certainly wasn't wasn't kind of at their level at that time. Um, but uh, uh, they gave me a little bit of encouragement and you know, next thing BitGo was born. And so what was your, well, firstly, let's go back a little bit. What did you first think Bitcoin was when you saw it? And how's that evolved? And then why BitGo? In terms of what it was, I mean, I guess I saw originally, it's, it's you can change money. Um, whatever Bitcoin itself is, um, it, it, it really is the, the first version of many protocols to come. I'm super excited about what's starting to come out of DeFi. I think it's been, you know, five, six years in the making to find some really solid use cases, but there's some really interesting stuff going on there right now. Um, back to Bitcoin, I mean, at some level, you do need that, that base foundation figured out. There's core principles that we need to solve, security, usability. We're partway through these things. I think security, actually, we're a little farther along. Usability, we're still working out, but there's a tremendous amount of, of technical work to be done there. For my little neck of the woods back then, and at the time, you know, I think all of crypto was like a six billion market cap as we were getting started with, with, uh, with Bitcoin. The multi-sig had an appeal for people that had larger amounts of it. And at that time, you know, a big wallet might have been, you know, ten million dollars worth worth of asset. Um, so it's it's a different scale. We've come a tremendous way, you know, since that time. But we just gravitated towards kind of commercial uses and things like that. As a technologist myself, and hiring other people that that are also technologists. Um, you know, we focused on APIs um, that brought in developers. Um, and so you know, we started just, just building that way. So anybody that needed security is usually people that are holding more amounts of it. It's more business type of activity. And that led us down this institutional path that we're on today. So talk to me a bit about um, BitGo now, where you are, what you do as a business, who you service. So BitGo, you know, we're one of the older companies in the space. Um, and uh, we have evolved with the space. I mean, at, at our core, we still are very much a security and technology company. Uh, instead of just multi-sig for Bitcoin, which you know, origin, our first mission was you know, securing the world's Bitcoin. Um, you know, today we support something like 18 blockchains, you know, 300 plus tokens, et cetera. So at the bottom of what we do is still technology. A lot of clients uh, purchase that technology. We've got software, we've got hardware, we've got cold storage, hot storage, um, pretty much the, the, the largest breadth of offering on technology. Companies use us from the technology side at an exchange. They might host it and white label it. You don't necessarily know. Um, custodians use it, payment processors, broker dealers, kind of pretty much all types. We can take care of that technology for you, um, so you don't have to. But, you know, the industry has grown. And although our original vision was like, hey, we'll build this great technology and like the financial incumbents will come in and they'll buy it and they'll use it, it'll be distributed all over the world. Ah, well, we ran into this little wrinkle, you know, in terms of you know, regulatory compliance and resistance from incumbents that see actually things, right? <laughs> So at some point, you know, you want to be able to service fiduciaries. And that led us to making, you know, the, the very clear choice of we're moving from technology company to financial services firm, um, which is where we are today. So we're a regulated entity today. We're, we're a qualified custodian, um, constantly expanding that. We're, we've got licenses in, in uh, Switzerland, coming in Germany, uh, coming in um, Singapore. Uh, and uh, we service both uh, the technology products, which we use ourselves, as well as others and then financial services products include liquidity and lending and now building full prime brokerage. And 
you must feel that finally you're in the right place at the right time because the institutional space is moving here fast and they cannot operate without services like yours. It's, it's impossible for them to even report to their trustees that we don't have that kind of security. That's right. A fiduciary or a regulated entity, they need to work with fiduciaries and regulated entities. So um, it, it's a natural fit. And, and you're, you're precisely correct as well that back in 2014, 2015, you know, we're like, hey, we're going to do institutional business to business. And people are like, OK, I guess you could do that. We're going to go do retail. So, uh, you know, institutional is sexy now. Uh, and I, I do think it's a critical part. Our overall mission is like we want to see digital assets succeed so that we can start to redefine what's happening in the financial system, make it actually be global, make it have more access, make it have less risk, more transparency. Um, and you have to have an institutional component to do that. Um, I know that there's sometimes this debate about centralized and decentralized. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of what's going on with, with decentralized technology. Um, that doesn't mean there's not a role for centralized components that fit within it. So we have a number of things we do there, you know, wrap Bitcoin is an example of where centralized products can actually help the decentralized product. Um, and actually they will, will, will dovetail together, but fiduciaries, they're going to need somebody else to hold their assets. They need checks and balances. We need to build market structure instead of just having single counterparty risk on one exchange. That's your broker and your exchange and your clearinghouse in one shot. Um, so that's what we're working on. I've spoken to many people about the institutional kind of wall of money, as I refer it to. Are you seeing a huge amount of interest coming in? It is. Uh, you know, I, I generally say that the the wall of money is, is not the best way to think about it. It's not going to be so much be a step function um, as it will be, you know, a, a slope. Um, but to be honest, in Q4, I mean, it did start to look like a bit of a, a, a step function. Um, so I think what we couldn't have predicted is the backdrop of coronavirus and how that would accelerate the thesis of Bitcoin and the value of scarcity and how people think about it. I mean, you know, there's a human nature component about how we think about debt and money and what's logical to us. Then there's like the sheer expanse of the U.S. dollar and how massive it is on a global scheme. So I'm not really a negative on the U.S. dollar. I don't think it's uh, in dire straits or anything like that. But anybody, whether you're whether you are negative on the dollar or not, you have to admit that the the level of money creation in the last three to six months makes you think again about how long can this per per perpetuate? You know, what's really going to happen with this? And so that's led to an acceleration. And, you know, the stock market is, you know, up until I guess today, but it's maybe a special case, but generally been just up and to the right for a long time. Everybody's waiting for the other shoe to drop. You've got the bond market that's been, you know, nowhere for a long time. You've got cash reserves which are negative in a bunch of places around the world. Where are you going to save, save your asset? All of a sudden, you know, it's like extra urgent to figure out how are we going to preserve value? Bitcoin looks like a very, very interesting uh, possibility. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I spend a lot of my time speaking to institutions, hedge funds, family offices, and it started with a trickle, but now almost everybody's doing work on it now, trying to figure out, okay, how do we integrate this into our risk management systems? How can we think about it? Can we get approval? I mean, we've just, we just commissioned a whole white paper that I'm publishing tomorrow, actually, uh, which was written by, because I've talked about the, how the space talks to institutions in the wrong language. You know, we, you know, it's, it's all about the kind of philosophy of Bitcoin as opposed to here's how it fits in your portfolio. Um, so I commissioned a guy who uh, was a Real Vision um, member who used to work for Barra, who designed all the risk models. And I said, listen, can you just do the proper risk model analysis for this and how it works in portfolio and the portfolio effects? That comes out. 
and you know, slowly but surely, we're seeing more people understand it, get the approvals process. So I think it's only going to come more and more so over time. Absolutely, and uh, you know, hopefully, Bitco's had at least somewhat of a role to play. But you know, building infrastructure from scratch that institutions can look at and say, "Aha, that matches my mental model of how I participate in an asset class." Um, that's definitely been happening. So we're seeing clients that were kicking the tires three years ago, back 2017, 18, as there was a big run up. And then kind of the price dropped out. So they got less interested, but they got less, it took them too long at that time because the infrastructure really wasn't there. You know, who's going to hold this asset for me? How am I going to have access to deep, legitimate liquidity? Uh, what's the regulatory and compliance you know, components of this look like? Now you look at those exact same questions today, and we've got much stronger answers. So Yes, now they're coming in, they're taking a look at it for a bunch of different reasons, um, but they're seeing what they need in order to be able to participate. Um, before we uh, go on to some broader topics, I want to ask a little bit about security because it's a very contentious issue. Where do you think the state of security, let's say for retail is? Institution is different because people are building specific solutions, but retail, people don't know how to deal with this bare asset. People are still worried about the exchanges, but then, you know, People are very uncomfortable having to put on their ledger or, you know, whatever other tool that they use, their wallet. How do you think, I, I've got a suspicion that it's much less risky than people think it is now on exchange. What, what's your thought process over where security is now? Well, it's a good thing we have a six-hour podcast to cover this in depth. Um, <laughs> um, so, look, there's a lot of questions in there. Um, and and you're right. In some ways, the the institutional part is easier because you know we have more dollars to apply towards the solution. It's fewer clients, more bespoke solutions. Um, let's tackle the big end, the, the high end first, and then then the small. Um, at the institutional level, you know we actually have known this for a while. Uh, separation of kind of large amounts of asset, put those offline. Um, smaller amounts of real time need put those online. And exchanges that have done this have benefited from this. Um, tremendously exchanges that haven't have failed. There's a second component, which I think we're working on now, which is the infrastructure of how we move crypto around the world. It's still problematic. So if you can trust the management of an exchange, you're probably okay. And if you can't, and you may not know, then you're in trouble. Now, in any other asset class, we have a fabric of multiple institutions that participate together. Exchanges never hold the asset directly, never. And if you go to the SEC and you say, hey, I'm the NYSE, I wanna hold my own asset, they will laugh you out of the room. It's not even gonna be considered. Um, so I think that's the phase we're in right now is actually starting to separate. And we are seeing some of this happen. So a number of exchanges today have already started using custodians for their cold storage, right? And so now they have, a check and a balance. And imagine if Mt. Gox, you know, back in 2013 had been using the independent custodian, you know, some of the errors that had occurred there would have been flagged so much earlier and so many people would not have lost money. Um, but the same thing is true, whether it's, you know, CoinCheck or whether it's uh, uh, Quadriga or, or, or whatnot. All of these failures, if you just had a check and a balance, a little bit of market structure, you could have solved that problem. This last year, we had a bit of a scare. Um, we had, you know, BitMEX had some withdrawal problems as their founders were um, indicted. Um, you know, that created a scare. Are we going to be able to get our money on? Now, it had so far a happy ending, but it's definitely caused institutional folks to rethink, wait a minute, am I actually okay distributing millions of dollars to three or four different exchanges? And they are rethinking that and they're starting to look for custodial and then also, you know, settlement slash clearinghouse types of options. So I think there's a lot of work to be done kind of in the market structure. Is it security from a private key perspective problem? 
No, it's not. It's actually security from a who is the other party and what are they doing um, to help me, right? And just making it so you don't have all eggs in one basket. So uh, things are getting a ton better on, on that side. At the at the retail level, you know, we do actually have hardware wallets, which um, uh, I think are pretty damn secure, frankly. Um, I know there's been a couple of uh, CVEs, you know, known exploits uh, come out recently, but they've been pretty minor. Um, the uh, These work, I think, reasonably well for relatively small amounts of money. Um, I think the real problem we have is not the hardware or the software, uh, it's human nature. So you can pretty safely say that humans can and will lose key material, and that's it. Um, they will. So we're not good at security. We're not good at security in anything that we do. Um, we, um, we think we've got a secure password by writing it down on a sticky tab stuck to our monitor, right? Um, or we think that, hey, we can take the backup to our two-factor auth uh, generator and put it on our Google Drive. Um, you know, th there's just a whole bunch of failures that we have here. So for relatively small amounts of money, we definitely, we're, we're fine. You know, um, it's kind of like the difference between what's in your wallet versus what's in your bank. Um, but for large amounts of money, we can do better. Now, I think where we end up with is we can have a hybrid situation where you're able to own it yourself in a non-custodial to a bank fashion. Um, and yet not be fully responsible. This is what multi-sig gives you, right? You can now start to split the keys across multiple entities. Um, and we're gonna get better and better at this. Um, Bitco offers this today. You actually can go to Bitco and, and, and sign up for a wallet and have exactly this. I will give you the backup systems that you need. We can generate a backup key with a third party. So there's even a third, a third component to it. Um, we can solve this problem. Um, certainly more work to be done, but I think we also made a lot of inroads since uh, 2013. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. One of the things, your background is incredibly interesting because. You were involved with the early stage of the internet and then turning it into sort of a consumable product. So from protocol to uh, application, there's a lot of work being done in the kind of interoperability layer within all of this, the crypto world. H how are you thinking of all of that? How do you think this is going to evolve? Does it stay as silos or does the whole thing evolve into something much bigger? Well, this is the market structure that I'm, I'm referring to. We have to figure out how to make market structure work. So you've got software, which is very different from financial services. So in the software business, right, you know, you hear about software as a service models and, you know, Salesforce versus Oracle and these great battles and every seat that Salesforce wins from Oracle is one more for Salesforce and one less for Oracle. Okay. That's kind of a, there's a one winner and that's, that's it. You pick one piece of software. In the financial services world, actually, that's not the way it works. You know, everybody's intertwined. You've got to be able to interoperate. We don't want uh, uh, both parties of the trade to always have to be using the same bank. That doesn't give you the redundancy and the checks and balances that you need. So how do you get from where we are today to, to where we need to be? Um, Bitcoin evolved with these centralized exchanges, these vertical stacks where, you know, they're acting in a lot of ways like brokers for both buyer and seller, Right. And they're acting as the exchange, they're acting as the clearinghouse, they're acting as the custodian. Anybody from the institutional side takes a look at that, they're like, wait a minute, I'm wiring $100 million to you and I have 100% counterparty risk on you? How am I going to do that? It doesn't work, right? Um, now, 
can you break that down into smaller chunks and get your risk around it? Yes, you can. But better is to have uh, a market structure. So as we've had better participants coming in, folks like Fidelity, great. Um, so we're now starting to see some separation of custody from exchange, which is good. I don't think we quite have a broker yet. I think you know we'll, we'll figure out what exactly that role is. Um, but if we could just separate the storage of the asset from the trading of the asset, we're going to be light years ahead of where we've been for the last few years um, in terms of safety for investors. And from there, it'll, it'll evolve further. The exact destination of what perfect market structure should be, you know, maybe we don't entirely know yet. I don't think replicating the equities world is quite the right thing. That was built over decades for purposes of uh, meeting needs with non-electronic systems that didn't have the capabilities we have now. Like, we can do atomic swap of assets across custodians if we just agree on the damn protocol, right? Um, the technology is here today. And if you can now have, uh, you know, custodians kind of of equal level, like, you know, if, if a custodian is really small, another one's really big, they have a hard time trusting each other from a financial services perspective. So you can get the technology there, but you also need to get some amount of the higher level there because people don't want to have reputational risk and somebody else that may fail um, operationally, even if the technology is there. Um, but if we get enough participants across the custodians, we can standardize the protocols and we can start to build better and better market structure. So um, there is overlap. I agree with you. Yeah, because, it, you know, even when you look at the, the two different types of counterparties, you know, with the programmable nature of many of these chains, you should be able to even program in risk management tools where money moves around according to certain conditions that happen in certain organizations. I mean, there's a whole different way of doing things. I mean, I was one of the people who got caught out in MF Global, for example, and all my assets got absorbed into that mess. And I can see it was coming, but I couldn't get my money in. Mm -hmm. But these kind of things can actually be automated, that can actually reduce the risks that certain events happen. And didn't we see it this week, right? So with the, with the GameStop issue that's going on, I mean, what's happening here, right? We've got somebody that's overexposed on a short, and because of the way that system works, you can't tell exactly how overexposed they are. And it's not real time and it doesn't trade 24 seven. It's not automatically connected to liquidity. So as they get farther and farther and behind on their position, you know, all these you know, margin collateral requirements are going out and they've got 24 hours or 48 hours to satisfy it. But the market moves tremendously in that period of time. That's not even near fast enough, right? But what we're building now with digital assets is the ability to solve that problem, right? They would have a certain amount of collateral, you'd know exactly what that counterparty risk exposure was. And as the, as the price continued to go up, you'd auto liquidate across reliable exchanges. Exactly. And that loss, they still would have lost money and they should have the right to lose money. Hey, that's, that's fine, that's investing, right? But the risk would have been contained to those that were actually extending margin to them. You wouldn't be looking at a you know bankruptcy with you know, calls of all kinds of other assets that, you know. We'll find out in the next few weeks, you know, who else is going to be kind of sucked into that, that morass. Um, anyway, you're, you're right. We, we can fix this. This is where this is going. And it's why what we're doing in digital assets is so exciting. And also, you know, you know you're in the financial services industry now, essentially, but the crypto part of it, you know, rehypothecation, leverage, derivatives, all of this is coming, whether people like it or not, because humans are humans and they'll always take the leverage option. But the good thing is, is stuff on chain it's much easier to unwind than Lehman. It certainly is. And, and in theory, we should have a lot more transparency. Now, you know, I think, I think we've got another level of, of evolution to go because as you know, you know, most of the trading is happening off chain. 
Um, so funds get submitted to omnibus wallets uh, and you know, lots of off-chain trading happens there. Margin gets extended there. You, know, you, you don't have the transparency uh, outside of those verticalized stacks that you really want to see. So when you start talking about extending margin and what collateral was collected and did you rehypothecate it, we don't have as much transparency as we want to. Now, it's not because the technology can't support it. It's because the way we're using them right now uh, is, is, is heavily off-chain. But the capabilities are here. Um, I do think that the scalability of the blockchains becomes an inhibitor. Uh, part of why people move to omnibus wallets is because it is so much cheaper and so much faster than the on-chain components. But I think as the, as the ecosystem evolves, we will see pockets of institutional providers, you know, like BitGo, um, and you will be able to see big chunks of collateral um, committed towards certain initiatives, and you'll be able to verify that, and it will definitely reduce the risk um, that you, you otherwise can't measure between these, these important parties. Fascinating. So as you're looking at the space and the position you're in, what do you see that's particularly interesting for you right now? You're thinking, oh my God, I, this is a big opportunity, or this is going to be a huge change that people aren't seeing yet. What's getting you excited? Well, you know, I think I think we actually do have to continue to spend time. Uh, I'll answer two ways. Um, we're not done with what we've put on the table yet. Um, we need to just keep building and refining and getting better at this. It's it's not at the same level of maturity that it needs to be at. Um, every time we go up an order of magnitude in in value or market cap, we need to be thinking about how do we go up an order of magnitude in terms of infrastructure and systems and things like that. So this industry changes incredibly fast. I don't think there's been an industry I've ever seen that goes as fast as this. Um, and that uh, you know kind of pulls you towards constantly getting attracted towards other things. But I do think we have to stay focused there. Nonetheless, you know the DeFi markets I, I think are starting to show some incredible opportunity. Um, you know we're now seeing smart contracts that are being used in significant scale that are completely automating away, you know, like automated market makers. I, I think it's, it's it's a relatively simple component of, of DeFi, but um, uh, it, it works and it's sound and, and, and the guys working on that are getting better and better at it. So uh, we now have some issues around how do you regulate that? What is needed? What's not needed? What are the risks, et cetera, from a, a legal perspective, um, but the technology is there. So certainly a few years behind on maturity from other things like Bitcoin itself, but uh, in, incredibly exciting. Regulation is obviously a hot topic right now. We've got a new chairman of the SEC. Um, we've got a, a new government. How do you think it's going to play out? We're hearing noises, obviously, from the ECB. How do you think this is all going to play out in regulation terms? What are you sensing here? Uh, I think when people get educated about what digital assets are, they realize, holy cow, it's pretty much better in all aspects. Um, and... Uh, although it's really scary because you don't understand it, when you do start looking at pretty much any angle, um, it's going to provide a better system. Now, you know, sometimes you heard there were some comments. Somebody said, like, it's all used for terrorist financing and money laundering and all these bad things. Um, well, first off, that's just provably not true. Um, has that happened in the past? Of course. Has it happened with dollars? At a much bigger level, it has. Um, that, that's not really um, the issue of where we're at. Um, in the end, we're going to find that actually the transparency of a blockchain gives you much better visibility in real time than you ever had before. Um, as an example of this, by the way, we had the uh, you know the Capitol riots just a few weeks ago, right? And within like a week, 
people are identifying funds that went to like right-wing groups, right? Um, when was the last time the government was able to do that, right? I mean, imagine, I mean, heck, just the records getting to FinCEN takes two weeks. They, no way they could do that in that, in that quick order. So the blockchains are actually going to make it easier for governments to handle that part of their job. Um, there's other questions about, you know, is, are we doing it the right way anyway? So uh, I think it's just a matter of time. We need the, the regulators to kind of get more educated. Um, and there's a whole bunch of parties. And the, the, the critical mass behind pushing this forward is getting strong enough that um, it's, it's just a, a matter of time. We've got very important, uh, well-known financial veterans um, that, that are very familiar with what's going on with Bitcoin. They understand it and they're helping us push through. So I think we're going to be okay. Uh, there'll be bumps along the road, but um, it's, it's, it's all going to be, be approved. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and I think that some of the philosophical standpoint of Bitcoin of of not having to register wallets and so, stuff like that, some of it's going to be sacrificed because the government in the end owns the on-ramp and off-ramp into fiat, you know, where we pay taxes and do other stuff. So people have to realize that some parts are going to be sacrificed, but it's actually for greater adoption. Yeah, and I think those will be somewhat temporary as well. Um, you know, when, when governments try to control the ability for people to use money, when they're using it for sound reasons, um, it never works. And, and we've seen this, of course, in examples of currencies that have gone to hyperinflation. You know, typically the, 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 the currency starts to inflate, the government gets concerned because the citizens move to something else like dollars. And now the, the, the government comes in and says, no, you can't use dollars anymore. And they make it illegal. And people are like, well, your currency doesn't work for me. I, I, I need to save money so I can you know, pay my rent and buy my food. So they continue to use dollars. Now a black market emerges. And with a black market, the government then says, okay, fine. You use your black market, but we'll peg our price and our currency is worth X. And everybody knows it's not worth X. You can't control the market. The market does what it does. So eventually the government has to capitulate Dollars are legal again. If hyperinflation continues, you know they end up resetting. Um, you, you you can't really stop it. We do have a global economy today, and the ability to send payments across the globe freely and easily—it's undeniably a good thing for humankind. Um, when you start talking about the the rights of people to have access to money so that they can earn a dollar, save it, earn a currency, save a currency, and spend a currency tomorrow at, at value. I mean, we need to have this. This is how you up-level all human beings. So they can try to stop it along the way for certain things. And of course, we should regulate it to keep bad actors out. And we will do that. Um, but um, digital assets are here to stay. And you can't, you can't put the cat back. What's your view on the other big issue, big macro issue of the day, which is the stable coins? How's that going to play out? I mean, I had a good conversation with, um, with um, Jeremy from Circle. And his view was, listen, governments can't innovate fast enough to actually compete in this space. But obviously they'd love to own it because for them, it, they can marry fiscal and monetary policy together. It's pretty powerful, I get that. How, how, how do you think this all plays out? Yeah, so I mean, digital assets like Bitcoin, of course, are very different from stable coins. They're used for different purposes, but uh, stable coins will be definitely the, the bridge between digital assets and anything fiat. And if you believe central bank digital currencies are coming, 
which I do, I think that the stable coins are how they're going to come around. And maybe similar, I didn't, I didn't see that interview, but with, with Jeremy, can the government build CDBDCs or will private industry build it? And I think it's actually far more likely that private industry will build CBDCs. And if you've got the Fed, which can just drop money into big bank accounts anyway, which is the backing, um, and the Fed and the, and the government can, can control that component, then probably private industry can better handle the stablecoin component of it, which is the digital asset, digital asset access to it, and um, you know how those wallets work, how security works, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Is that the public have their own digital wallets? The central bank, basically, the private sector owns the pipe, and the central bank owns what flows down the pipe, and that's that kind of works. But Europe seems to want to go the other way. You know, they they still kind of seem to think that they can build and own the pipes and the wallets and all of well, maybe not the wallets, but the pipes as well. I don't see any any difference there. I think that the innovation will always be better in private industry, whether it's Europe or America. So I just think the innovation is going to happen in the private industry. And sooner or later, in order to get their CBDC going, they're going to be looking for private industry to help. And if you think about the Federal Reserve System, I mean, technically, it's a, it's a, it's a network of private banks, right? It's not, they're not all government owned. So this is actually a pretty good interface. And in fact, it could give you the benefits of you know, a lot of you know private innovation combined with the ability for the the feds to to closely monitor the actual issuance issuance of the the underlying asset. Um, I think they should probably embrace it. It's it's the best thing for them. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, another thing that is something I wonder how you're thinking about is we've only just started in tokenization. How on earth are you? as a financial services firm or the industry going to deal with the level of complexity and the sheer number of assets that are going to come? Because this could dwarf anything we see in equity markets and most securities markets because of the bespoke nature of almost every smart contract that can be created. How, how are you thinking of dealing with that? Because that's coming, isn't it? Well, I think we'll see some... Uh some common building blocks for all of these digital assets, right? It's not like everybody's going to have a completely custom smart contract that everybody else is going to have to re-review. So over time, we will build layers that start to make this come together. And in some some level, this is not different from what happens with the networking protocols. You know, we we have underlying network layers and we have transport layers above that. We have application levels above that. And by building that way, you can get common components that you can reason about and the actual custom pieces are relatively small. We already see this with uh, ERCs, right? With uh, ERC-20, with uh, ERC-1404. These are little standards inside of how you interoperate with these coins so that lots of parties can, can reason about it. Um, now it's super early days. I think there's a lot more commonality to be to be sorted out, um, but, uh, but, but that will come. And of course the tokenization that we're doing today is, is trivial compared to what, what's going to be here in, in 10 years. Um, so um, expect innovation and building blocks. I think that's the story of the space, isn't it? I mean, there is going to be a huge amount of innovation still to come. We've only just started. It's still relatively early compared to where the space is going. So in terms of the comfort around technology, I mean, we did talk about a little bit earlier around like a private key. So, you know, when you buy shares of Apple today, you know, you don't have to worry that, oops, I lost my key, I lost my shares of stock. And we have to make it so that, that we have a good backup system for that and it's indoctrinated. I do think we have the technology to do it. It's a matter of kind of getting everybody to agree on, on which way to do it. On the other side of it though, uh, you might remember the uh, the Dole cap table from a couple of years ago. Um, 
uh, where you know they lost track of their cap table. And if, to tell the story, because it's really funny, right? So Dole was a public company, and then they wanted to go back private. And there was a shareholder lawsuit saying, hey, you shouldn't have done it, you sold too cheap. And so there was a settlement. And then they look at the settlement and all these people write in saying, okay, I have shares, you owe me, you owe me some of the settlement. And it turned out 133% of the shares came back asking for a piece of the settlement. And at first they thought it was scammers. And then it turned out to be, wait a minute, these are legitimate shareholders. They didn't know what their cap table looked like. All right, so anyway, you tokenize this stuff. We can absolutely make it electronic and mechanical. Um, we can hand it over to the machines that are better at this accounting than we are, and you won't have those types of problems. So, you know, the SEC tends to look kind of at this one side of like private keys are scary and, and new, um, but there's this other side, just the basics of how do you keep track of a cap table? Um, they haven't even solved that problem yet, right? So uh, there's a lot of good problems to solve. This is where it's exciting to have software in the financial services industry for the first time, um, really. You know, we've been, we've been doing this internet stuff for 25 years now, but financial service is kind of like the, the last pillar to fall um, for, for, for software to help take over. Yeah, I think Mark Andreessen was dead right with his software is eating the world. Absolutely. It is now about to eat the entire financial services industry alive. And it's a great time to be alive for all of us. You know, it's just fascinating. We've such revolutionary change. It's just exciting. It is. It's going to hit us globally. It's going to hit us in terms of risk and, you know, the stuff we talked about, whether you're talking about funny market manipulations and game stops or whether you're talking about uh, just over leveraged CDOs and things like that, um, you know, we, we can address all of these problems in, in ways that simply weren't possible before. Mike, thank you ever so much. It was super interesting. Uh, a good update on, on what's going on and some of your thoughts. So I really do appreciate your time. Likewise, and thanks for all you do for the industry, Raleigh. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're a celebrity all over the place for, for helping put all this stuff together and you're helping. I just, you know, I'm passionate about it and I just want, you know, that's why it's very important for me to get you on to talk about some of the institutional stuff because, you know, I want to help the space develop because I've been in the financial markets forever and I know what a mess it is you and I have talked about and it needs to be sorted out um, and it can be. Um, and so we all play our part and see where we get to. Well, we know where we're going to get to. It's just, you know, how fast can we do it? <laughs> exactly right. Brilliant. Excellent. Thanks so much. Right. Great to speak to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.